Revelation chapter number two. Revelation chapter number two. Continuing on in our series through the seven churches of the book of Revelations, looking at the church of Thyatira this evening. Let's go and read Revelation chapter number two, and we're going to read verses 18 through the end of the chapter. Verse 18 through the end of the chapter. And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet like, on, like fine brass. I know thy works, and charity, and service, and faith, and thy patience, and thy works, and the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication." and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts. And I will give unto every one of you according to your works. But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden, but that which ye have already hold fast until I come. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my Father. And I will give him the morning star, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Let's open up in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the challenge that you've given to these churches. Uh, Father, this isn't a, a word to the lost. It isn't a word to the Old Testament saints. But it's a, a word to an actual church, an actual group of people who actually existed. And Lord, these things are a caution to us. And I just pray that you will help us to see exactly what you're trying to say and what you're trying to warn us away from in these verses today. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title of my message tonight is 
are you too tolerant? Are you too tolerant? Okay. As of January 11th, 1991, edition of Christianity Today asked the following question. Are you tolerant? And then in parentheses, should you be? Tolerance is generally viewed as a necessary social grace for the welfare of a well-functioning society. But honestly, we've, we've drifted a long ways from that. You just turn on your news. It's been a long time since America had any clue what tolerance was, right? Um, that's why you have cities burning down. Anyways, okay, so. But there's, there's two things that have highlighted our current intolerance in our society today. The first was the election of Donald Trump. We saw that heightened things. And then the COVID pandemic. Both those things really brought into the forefront an intolerance for anybody who had a view that was different than you. And I'm not weighing in on any of these issues. I'm just saying it highlighted the fact that American society has degraded over time. It used to be in society that people believed in letting everybody else alone. You could have your opinion, and that's fine. You have your opinion, I have my opinion. That's what tolerance used to be within our nation. The old definition of tolerance meant that even though you disagreed with somebody and disapproved of somebody's beliefs, values, or lifestyles, you held your own views, but you allowed them to live as they wanted to. Now, tolerance in our society has changed definitions, okay? Uh, D.A. Carson has described the new tolerance in three different ways. It has three different characteristics. First of all, the new tolerance tends to insist that those who merely disagree with, with others, at least in several spheres, are intolerant, even if no coercive force is applied. So if you just disagree with me, you're the intolerant person. And we, we know that. We see that because Christianity is the bigoted, intolerant group even though we aren't forcing our thoughts down their throats, um, we're, we're viewed by most people as being intolerant. They also, the second characteristic is that they tend to make such, that type of tolerance the supreme good. Everything else is debatable. Everything else is up for grabs. But this is the one thing you have to agree on. You have to be tolerant. And if you aren't tolerant, we're not going to tolerate you, right? And that's the third characteristic. They tend to be remarkably blind in regards to their own intolerance, right? Their own intolerance, their condemnation of everybody who disagrees with them and leads them to intolerance, basically. That's the new tolerance that we see within our society today. And I believe that, honestly, most people drift to one of two extremes, okay? We either become intolerant of everything that dis disagrees with us or is not politically correct or is not according to what we think, or we go to the other extreme, and we tolerate everything. And it's just all, okay, that's, that's perfectly fine. Keep on doing what you want to do. And we tolerate everything in life. And so society has drifted to one of those two extremes. And I think, honestly, the church tends to drift to the second extreme. Because, in, in reality, we don't get accused of it. But in reality, this is what we, we, we tend to gravitate towards. Because we want to be loving, right? We want to be loving so we don't say anything about sin, or about uh, doctrinal error, or about uh, things that are happening that are bad. You know, we, we, t we tend to keep our mouths shut in order to be more loving. And today, as we look at the church of the, of the city of Thyatira, we're going to see that one of their biggest problems is exactly this. They were too tolerant. They were excusing too much. There is a line that you cannot cross, and the church of Thyatira had crossed that line. <clears throat> the church, this city, was not anything important. Thyatira was a smaller city. In fact, it was like the gateway to Pergamum, okay? So kind of like Yukon is to Oklahoma City. Nobody thinks of Yukon when they think of Oklahoma. They think of Oklahoma City or they think of Tulsa, especially not Piedmont, okay? <laughs> These are they're, they're towns that you approach as you're coming into the city, and that's what Thyatira was. It was known for being the gateway to Pergamum. They had a military fortress there, it was a trade route, so they specialized in metallurgy and textiles, which is going to come into play as we discuss some of the, the phrases that are used here. But we know that this city was where um, Lydia got saved. Acts chapter 16, verse says, And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. Notice it said she was a seller of purple because that's what Thyatira was known for. They were known for their textiles. 
So as we begin to look at the letter to this church, we're going to follow the same structure that we've used for all the letters. There's four main categories that we're going to look at. We're going to look at, first of all, the description of Jesus Christ in verse number 18. Verse number 18 says, And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. So there's really actually three descriptions here in this verse of Jesus Christ. And remember, the descriptions of Jesus Christ are not accidental. They establish and they foretell what's going to be coming in the rest of this letter. First of all, Jesus identifies himself as the Son of God. To say that you are the Son of something or someone is to carry the idea of having the same nature or the same essence as that person. Think of uh, the nickname, the Sons of Thunder. What were they known for? Being thunderous, right? Okay, Being loud, boisterous, like thunder. They had the characteristics of thunder. So when we use this, we're talking about Jesus be, is identifying himself with God by using this name. He is standing opposed to all the false gods that these Gentiles have been worshiping. Then it says, not only is he the son of God, but he, it says here, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire. Now, does Jesus literally have flames shooting out of his eyeballs? Is that that's what's going on, kids? Levi, does Jesus have flames shooting out of his eyes? Okay, I'm trying to get him to stay awake. Okay, so, no, Jesus doesn't. And, and we know this from the text. There's a little key word in here that tips us off that this is not a literal statement. What is that word? It's the word like, right? Like unto flames of fire. What does that mean? It's poetic. It's a, it's a, it's a poetic phrase that's intended to teach us something about Jesus Christ. Well, what would flames of fire indicate about the person of Jesus Christ? When you think of somebody who has fiery eyes, you think of somebody who is angry, indignant, right? They're, they're raging like a fire. They're, their eyes are burning. And so when we see Jesus with eyes of fire, that is a picture of his judgment. <clears throat> then it also says that he has feet like unto fine brass. Now, Thyatira was known for, again, their metallurgy. And one of these things was a really shiny, polished brass that, would, that they used to worship their, their false gods as well. But both of these statements are a reference back to the Old Testament in Daniel chapter number 10. Let's go ahead and turn there real quick. Daniel chapter number 10. <clears throat> Find Ezekiel, and it's right after Ezekiel. Daniel chapter number 10, and we're going to read verse number 6. <clears throat> it says here, Then I lifted up mine eyes, and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with fine gold of Uphaz. His body also was like beryl, and his face as the appearance of lightning, and his eyes as lamps of fire and his arms and his feet like in color to polished brass, and the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude. This is a, a messianic passage right here, and it's referencing Jesus Christ. It's a figure of Jesus Christ. But the idea here is, again, he is coming in judgment. Just like a, uh, the last church we looked at, Jesus is not coming alone to reward those who are good. He is coming in judgment against this church. And in fact, the fiery indignation, he is coming with anger because of the things that they have allowed to exist within their church. So first of all, that's, that's the image of Jesus Christ. Secondly, we're going to look at the condition of the church found in verses 20 through 21. Uh, key word here is notwithstanding. Sorry, go back. Verse 19. I don't know how I skipped that. <laughs> verse 19. And I know thy works and charity and service and faith and thy patience, and thy works, and the last to be more than the first. Now, he starts off with the positive. Did any of you see a, a phrase that was repeated twice in that verse? Anybody? Is, is, is Jesus being redundant? Do you guys see it? The phrase, thy works, is repeated twice. I'm going to explain that in the end, okay? So, <clears throat> first of all, though, Jesus is praising their works. They're busy about serving the Lord. And we've talked about this multiple times, how you can be a busy church 
and not be a sound, godly church. Those two things do not go together necessarily. Okay, so they, they had works. They were busy about serving the Lord. So I know thy works, and then he says, I know thy charity. What is charity? Charity is their love, their, their love for the brothers. They had a love for each other which we'll see in the, next, in the next thing, says, and service. Because they loved one another, they provided service. And this idea of service is providing aid for one another. This is one of the things Mrs. Ridley spearheads in the church and taking care of meals for people throughout the church. This is part of that ministry within the church. They provided aid for others who were in need. Then it says here, and faith. Okay, This is their trust in God that leads to them standing faithful, not denying the faith. And then patience. Patience is another word for endurance here. Again, they were enduring. Now, this last phrase, and thy works, okay? It is actually joined to the last phrase, and the last to be more than the first. Okay, he's saying that your latter works are more than your first works. That's, that's literally what it's saying in the Greek in this phrase right here, okay? Now, what does that mean? It means this church is growing. This church is progressing spiritually. Their, their, their latter works are more than their first works. And this is how things should be, right? When you, have, when you have a kid as a baby, how much can they do? They can eat and they can poop, okay? And they, and they can burp, you know, and they can scream. That's, that's about it. Can they walk? Can they play basketball? No, they can't do any of those things. Can they eat a steak? Can they go fishing or sailing a boat? No, they can't do any of those things. As they grow, they can do more things, right? And that's natural. And so uh, Jesus is emphasizing here that this church was growing. Their latter works were more than their first works. They were doing more now than they had done when they first got saved. And this is, this is key because you remember the church of Ephesus Church of Ephesus was, uh, they, they were good about their doctrine, but they had grown cold in their relationship with the Lord. They had stopped growing, in essence, right? This church is growing in holiness and service towards God. They're not stagnant like the church of Ephesus. They have not lost their first love. They, and, they are told to, and they are not told to rediscover their relationship with the Lord because they are growing. And that's, that's a, that is something that we should be striving for. This is a positive thing that they're describing in this church. But as many of the churches that, that we find in the book of Revelation, not only did they have positives, but they also had negatives. And we're going to see a phrase that we've seen before. Nevertheless, I have a few things against thee. Jesus is saying, I have some things against you. One of the things that I noticed in this text is that a church that has fervent deeds is not always a sound, healthy church. Jesus has some things to criticize about this church as well. There are churches all around the country that are booming. They're bustling churches. They have a lot to offer. There's excitement about everything that's going on in these churches. But just because they're big or just because they're busy does not mean that they are a healthy church. And in fact, sometimes busyness can become a substitute for true spirituality. And so in this church, they have some things that Jesus Christ is going to criticize them about. Now, the first thing that he criticizes here, and this, is, this sets the tone for everything else. Nevertheless, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophet, to teach and to seduce my servants, to com commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. That word sufferest means to tolerate or to allow. So what is Jesus condemning? What is he criticizing? He is condemning their tolerance. They are too tolerant. They have crossed a line and become too accepting of something. And so the question we've got to ask ourselves is, what is that line? When do we cross the line from being loving and, and bearing one another's burdens to becoming too tolerant? And this text is going to deal with that. So he says, first of all, that you have, that you have sufferest, you are tolerating that woman Jezebel. So this, this church, the church of Thyatira, was committing the sin of being to too tolerant of Jezebel, who was teaching false doctrine in the church. And like I said, sometimes Christians, we get a bad rap for being too tolerant. 
or for being not tolerant, right? But that's actually not really the case. It's not, it's not fully the case. And the accusation is laid against us because of that new definition of tolerance, because the Bible is contrary to some things, is it not? The Bible says some things are sin. And you know what? It's not going to change. It doesn't change over the time. The fifth, just because it was wrong in the 50s, and now we make progress in America, okay, through the 70s and onward, doesn't mean that right and wrong has changed. What the Bible was against then, it is against today. That doesn't change. Christians might change their mind. We might become too accepting, more accepting of these things, but the Bible does not change. And a Christian who is faithful to the Lord is going to line up with what the Bible says. And so we are not going to tolerate some things. Yes, we're not going to go out and do horrible things to people who we disagree with. That's not what I'm saying here. But we don't tolerate them, especially within the church. The Bible is not going to change its views on homosexuality or gender identity. So Christians can't give in to the temptation to do that just because we're accused of not being loving by doing so. And honestly, it wouldn't be loving for us to tell you a lie, for us to deny the truth and to hedge on that. <clears throat> so as Christians, we are, we are told, though, to tolerate one another, are we not? Isn't tolerance a, go a good thing? It's something that's necessary for the church to exist. Because if I don't tolerate the fact that, or if you guys have, let's use this. If you guys don't tolerate the fact that I'm weird, okay, so <laughs> then you're probably going to kick me out tomorrow, okay? So <laughs> tolerance is necessary for this church to exist because we are all weird human beings. We all have differences. We all have quirks. We all have faults. We all have flaws. And tolerance is the only thing that keeps us here at all. Become, eventually, if you give up on tolerance, we'll fight and we'll divide over every single little thing. And that has happened in the past, right? But tolerance is taught in the Bible, right? Colossians 3, verse 13. Let's go ahead and turn there. Colossians 3, verse 13. In Old English, it doesn't use the word tolerate, but it is still here. Colossians 3, verse number 13. says, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. That word forbearing literally means to put up with or to tolerate, right? So in the church, we're told, tolerate one another, put up with one another, bear with one another, okay? Ephesians 4, verse 2, let's go and turn there, it's just a couple pages back. Ephesians 4, verse 2. <clears throat> Actually, we'll go back to verse 1 just to set the groundwork here. It says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Now, what does it mean to walk worthy of our salvation? Verse 2, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love. So we are called to tolerate, to bear with brothers and sisters in Christ. This is an essential part of being a community of God. Hebrews 12 verse number 4 says, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. So this is extended not just to Christians, it's extended to all men. Romans 12 verse 18, if it be possible, as much as in you, live peaceable with all men. We are to not just tolerate Christians, we are to try to be tolerant of and live peaceably with everybody else around us, all the, all the unsaved people that are in our society as well. But Christians really, they don't suffer from lacking tolerance a lot of times. They, they, they ah, suffer from an extreme position of being too tolerant, okay? They, they tend to be too tolerant. Think about this. Preachers are afraid to preach on sin because they will step on somebody's toes and they don't want to lose people. Pastor Carsey, you've probably been here. I've been here. I've, in the six months I've been here, I know at least one person who's left because I preached on sin. Okay, so it happens. And so there's a temptation as a preacher to just avoid that topic. Let's talk about something else. Let's, let's just sidestep that phrase in the passage so we don't have to deal with it. Nobody gets upset and they walk away. But as Christians, church members, we know that some things are sin 
and yet we want to, we love these people and we don't ever want to say anything about it. Certain topics aren't politically correct within the church, politically correct. So we won't talk about what the Bible has to say about those issues. Or maybe somebody gets up and teaches something that is completely false according to the Bible and we never stand up and say what the Bible actually says and confront it. <clears throat> the word tolerate in this passage back in Revelation chapter number 2 is a continual action. These people were continuing to tolerate something they should not have been tolerating. It was happening over and over and over again. I think of the commands by Paul when he was saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders. He charged the pastors of the church of Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, verse 28 through 32. He said, take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock. First of all, take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. To do what? To feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, watch and remember that by the space of three years I ceased not to warn everyone night and day with tears. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all of them that are sanctified. One of the jobs of a pastor is to protect and warn the church of false teachers and false teaching. Specifically here, it says false teachers, okay? So we're to first of all, take heed, be careful, be diligent, be earnest about taking care of this task, okay? To feed the church, make sure they are being fed the word of God, feed the church. But also because there are wolves coming in, watch, keep an eye open and remember what I did, and Paul tells us what he did. I, he says here but that by the space of three years, I ceased not to warn everyone night and day with tears. Paul's ministry was a ministry of warning, warning them about error, doctrinal error that, people, that wolves were going to bring into the church. And that is one of the jobs of a pastor. And that obviously was not happening the way it should have in the church of Thyatira. Because this woman has been continually allowed to teach her message, her doctrine, within the church. They are continuing to tolerate her false doctrines. Now let's look a little bit about what she was teaching. First of all, we're going to look at that phrase, that woman Jezebel. We're going to look at who she was. Okay, Jezebel. This is probably not the, the real name of the woman. It's probably an allusion to the Old Testament. Okay, like anybody here name their kid Hitler? There are reasons we don't do that, okay? So, and in those days, anybody would have known Jezebel is a name. You just don't name your kid, right? Okay, so it's probably not a real woman, but it is a reference back to the Old Testament because who was Jezebel? Jezebel was an ungodly queen who led her people into idolatry. Let's look at 1 Kings chapter number 16, verse 31 and 32. 1 Kings chapter 16. <clears throat> I think Jesus uses this terminology because Jezebel and this woman were like two peas in a pod. They are the same. They are, they are kindred spirits in a bad way. 1 Kings 16, verse 31 and 32. <clears throat> and it came to pass, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Zidonians. And went and served Baal and worshipped him. And he reared up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And as you read, if you read the rest of the story, you'll see that Jezebel had a strong hand in the evil that her husband Ahab committed. And in leading the people into idolatry. When Elijah slew the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, who was it who came after him? It wasn't Ahab. It was Jezebel, because these were her priests. These were her men that she, that she had put in the nation of Israel. And so Jezebel led the people into idolatry in rebellion against her Lord. And so the premise here is that Jesus is saying, this woman is like a Jezebel. She is leading my people into idolatry. 
just like Jezebel did. Then it says here, which calleth herself a prophetess, okay, which calleth herself a prophetess. Now, obviously, she must have been some kind of an influential person, had a lot of charisma, a lot of personality, because people were listening to her. She was teaching them, and they, they liked what they heard. It says here that she calls herself a prophetess, so she was acting like a prophetess. There's a couple things you can notice about this. First of all, <clears throat> she was self-appointed. She was self-appointed. God did not make her a prophet. She calls herself an, a prophet. She put herself into this position. She, she, she desired the prestige and the following that all of this brought, and so she elevated herself. She was self-appointed. But also, it says here that she calleth herself a prophetess. Okay, again, she was self-appointed. But, <clears throat> but God says she was not, basically. That's the implication. She calls herself one, but that's not what I say about her. She is not a prophetess, okay? She put herself into that position. So this is Jezebel. She calls herself a prophetess, and then it says here, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. The text says that she was seducing the people of God. Seduce means to lead astray, to tempt, to draw them away from what they should be doing. So she was leading them out of the path of what God wanted them to do by her teaching. Now, what is this teaching, right? Not all teaching is good. Not all knowledge is good for us. You may, may not have thought about that, but not all knowledge is good for us. She's teaching them things that are opposed to what God has said. She says, but uh, in verse 24, it says, but unto you I say, <clears throat> but unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I'll put upon you none other burden. So what is this doctrine that she was teaching? First of all, we've already talked about in previous messages the link here to Gnosticism. Okay, Gnosticism was a philosophical group of Christians who are trying, not really Christians, but false teachers, who are trying to entice Christians with a deeper, secret, hidden knowledge. Notice it says here, the depths of Satan. There is a deeper knowledge. She's trying to entice them with more knowledge, with more learning. We've seen, like I said, we've seen how that was a tactic of the Gnostics. And honestly, you can understand this as a Christian. We talked about this this morning. Don't you want a deeper relationship with the Lord? Do you not want to know more about what God's word says? That's a natural part of being a Christian. It's also part of growth. It's part of growing in the Lord. And she's trying to draw them away with this. But notice it isn't the deeper things of God. It isn't a deeper relationship with him. It isn't that she isn't explaining the mysteries of the word of God to them. She is teaching them the deep things of whom? Of Satan. Things that are directly opposed to God's doctrine. <clears throat> and the implication here, just like every false teacher out there, if you want to know these deeper things, who do you have to come through? You have to come through me. I'm going to be the one to teach you these things. You can't study your Bible and find them out. You've got to come through me, the prophetess, if you're going to get these deeper things that I'm promising to you. And so she is acting as the gatekeeper for deeper truth. The doctrine that she taught encouraged the believers to do two things. First thing, and we looked at this already in the past, it, it uh, encouraged them to commit fornication, whether physical or spiritual. I personally believe it is not beyond the possibility that this is physical fornication because it's prevalent in our day and age today, even among those who say they are Christians. But at the very least, it is a spiritual fornication. It is adultery against their God. But then she, then she also encourages them to eat things offered to idolatry. Now, this is where the culture of Thyatira comes back in. Similar to what we talked about with Pergamos, Thyatira was a city of industry, and the city was organized into many, many different trade guilds, which would have their meetings oftentimes in local temples or would, worship, or would sell, um, serve meat that was sacrificed and dedicated to certain gods of their industry. Okay? And they would also, after, the, after that was done, they would have vile, debauched entertainment. Okay? 
honestly, I could think of if you got if you were taken by probably whatever company it is that you work for, except Jasco. Okay, so taken by a secular company and sent on a to Las Vegas. It, there's probably a lot going on there that's similar to what was going on here. And they had debauched entertainment at the end of their meetings. And many Christians, just like Pergamum, would have struggled with the decision to not participate in these situations. One ancient Christian named Tertullian wrote about the Christians who made their living in trades connected to pagan idolatry. He said, A painter might find work in pagan temples, or a sculptor might be hired to make a statue of a pagan god. They would justify this by saying, this is my living, and I must live. Tertullian replied, vivera ergo habes, or must you live? Are we willing to take a stand against compromise in these types of situations that are moral, morally wrong to the extent that, yes, I might have a job? That's what Tertullian is saying. Do you really need this job to live? Cannot God, God provide for you and take care of you? If this job is going to lead you into doing something that is morally wrong, why do you, why do you need this? And that was, that was the thrust of um, what she was trying to say, is you just compromise, just fit in, do these things, and it's all right. Okay. Now notice at the, uh, <clears throat> towards the end of verse number 20, 22, no, verse 21, it says that I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. So she was teaching these false doctrines. She's, she's been given the opportunity to repent. Now, how, how did that happen? I don't, honestly, we don't really know when she was given the opportunity to, to repent. Possibly, maybe John came and had warned her about this sin. Or maybe the elders of the church had warned her, but that's as far as they got in this process of church discipline, because that's what should have happened, right? And it says here that she, she does not Repent. In fact, in the Greek, it's she will not repent. She is showing a desire, a will, a willfulness against what the Lord has said. She refuses to repent. <clears throat> so she is a self-proclaimed prophetess. So she rejects the authority of the church and the apostles. But most of all, we see here she is rejecting the authority of Jesus Christ since he is the one giving her this space. He gave her time to repent, but she didn't do it. She refused to do it. And I believe the implication here is Jesus giving her space to repent as Jesus sent somebody to warn her, established the beginning stages of church discipline, which we know the pattern for church discipline, Matthew 18, verse 15 through 20. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. So first of all, you have a warning, a private warning. And if he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee two or th one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. So phase two, bring other witnesses with you. Still private scenario. That in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. So the third step is you bring it publicly before the church. And I believe this is not what was being done with Jezebel. Jezebel was teaching an evil doctrine, horrible doctrine that was corrupting the church. And maybe they were tempted to just tell, confront her privately, leave it private. How many churches have done that in the, in the past? They've left things as a private matter when it should have been publicly dealt with. And she should have been kicked out of the church. She should have, she, it should have come to conclusion here. Churches have erred here too often because they don't want to air their dirty laundry. That's the phrase that is used. But they do damage to themselves and their testimony in a world when they do not deal with sin in a church correctly. And we're going to see some of that damage in the, in the next section here. So notice in this church discipline process, it is still restoration. The heart of church discipline is still to restore them. And I think Jesus is giving even such a woman as this the opportunity to repent and to be restored. He is extending that heart of restoration to her because he gave her the space to repent, but she chose not to. 
So third thing we're going to look at is the consequences. If they do not deal with this, these are the consequences. Verse 22 and 23. Because she will not repent, behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins of the, and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. So first of all, we see that he promises to cast her into a bed. The word bed here could refer to one of four things, a sick bed, a sleeping mat, a regular bed, or a dining couch, okay? Um, some have taken it to mean that Jezebel loves her dirty bed with all her lovers, so God is going to cast her into a sick bed. And the implication is here is that there will be a physical consequence to her sin. And then her lovers, they are cast into great tribulation. I don't think this refers to the great tribulation. It just means great sorrow, great trial, great suffering, okay? So he's going to cast them into a bed. Then it says here he will kill her children. Now, this is not referring to physical children. This is her followers, her spiritual children. The people have adopted her doctrine. He will kill them. Children, children are spiritual children, her followers. So the word for death here could be physical death or it could refer to a deadly disease. But both cases refer to a physical punishment. And this is not beyond what we've seen throughout the rest of scripture. There comes a point in a person's life when they will not repent that God may take their life or he may bring sickness. In fact, you remember the, the Lord's Supper, right? The Lord's Supper, at the end of the passage, it talks about those who eat unworthily. And what is the consequence for eating unworthily? Many sleep, okay? That's a word for died. That's, that's what they're talking about here. So God is promising a physical consequence to her sin that she has committed. And then in uh, verse number 20, 23 here, it says, and I will kill her children with death and all the churches shall know. All the churches shall know. As I said, a lot of times churches so often try to cover up and hide their, the sin rather than deal with it. I've seen it over and over again. We hear it all the time on the, on the news when big churches especially try to keep these things secret. Sometimes they'll deal with it. They'll deal with it in private behind closed doors, okay? <clears throat> While the offender is chastened, but there is no change of status a lot of times, and, the, and no one knows what has happened. And that's not following church discipline in Matthew chapter 18. If you're bringing it before the church, it's not behind a closed door, okay? <clears throat> so they're, they're not fully dealing with the sin as it ought to be dealt with. But the sin ultimately is being ignored. So when it gets out, what happens? The church's testimony is damaged, okay? A lot of times churches will, will ship this guy off to such and such a ministry who committed this sin. He hasn't repented of it. He just, we're just shipping him off because we don't want people to know about it. Now he's just going to do it over there, right? You're not protecting anybody. Or we want to be loving, so we don't talk about it. We, we correct him. We maybe quietly take him out of his position, but there's been no repentance. There's been no steps of restoration taken. And this is a lot of times how churches have dealt with sin in the past, and it is not right. Think about this. How much worse would it be for people to know that there was a pervert in the church, but the church dealt with it, versus for them to find out later there was a pervert in the church and you didn't deal with it? The fallout from the second situation is going to be greater than the first, right? We ought to take care of sin. We ought to deal with unrepentant sin within the church. And that is what God is confronting this church with because they were tolerant. They allowed it to continue. The man is still sitting right there, or in this case, Jezebel is still sitting right there. We want to be loving. We want to maybe protect the, the reputation of the person. And yes, if he repents, steps of restoration can be taken and should be taken, but there should also be boundaries established and precautions taken because the health and the physical safety of the church is still important. We can't just pretend like it all vanished away. <clears throat> God is in essence saying, I, I am going to blow the lid off of this thing and all the churches will know that I know the hearts and I will deal with sin. They have not dealt with sin. They have, they have kept it quiet. But God says, all the churches 
shall know. They'll know their sin, but more importantly, he says here, all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. So God knows your actions. God knows the sin, but he is also going to send judgment. And so judgment sends shockwaves throughout the churches. Verse 24 through 29 is going to show us the reward for those who have not caved into this sin. Verse 24 through 29. But unto you I say, and unto, and also, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden. Okay? First of all, he's, when he says, I will put upon you none other burden, he is not saying, ignore the situation. Don't worry about it. It's fine. I don't want to weigh you down. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I will put upon you no other burden. This is still the burden that you have to do, and what he's going to say in a second. You still have to do these things, but I'm not going to over, overburden you. Take care of these things, okay? He says here I, um, in verse 24, I will put upon you none other burden but that which ye already hold, uh, that, which ye already, that which ye have already, hold fast till I come. So take care of this and stay faithful. Hold fast until I come. Till the day Jesus Christ returns again. Then he says, And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my Father. So he's promising a reward. If you hold fast, you take care of this, you hold fast, I'm going to promise you one, first of all, authority over the nations. You will have the right to rule. This is, this is talked about in Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 14. Daniel 7, verses 9 through 14 says, I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the ancient of days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were open. I beheld then because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake, and I, and I beheld even till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As concerning the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season of time. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him, and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people and nations and languages should serve. So Jesus Christ is given power over the nations, and then in, in verse 18 of the same chapter, but the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever even forever and ever. And then verse 22 says, until the ancient of days came and judgment was given to the saints of the most high and the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. This is part of what we have to look forward to is ruling with Jesus Christ in the millennial kingdom. And Jesus even promised this in Matthew 19 verse 28 when he said, and Jesus said unto them, verily I say unto you that ye which have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And this was talking primarily to the disciples, but the concept is there. The saints of God will reign and will rule with him. Verse 27 of our text is a reference back to Psalm chapter 2, verse number 9, which is a messianic psalm talking about um, the rule of the Messiah, breaking them as, with a rod of iron and dashing them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So the first reward, you will rule with me, okay? You will rule over the nations. The second reward, <clears throat> found in verse 28, and I will give him the morning star. Well, what is the morning star? Revelation chapter 22, verse 16. Let's turn there because we're in the same book. Revelation chapter 22, verse number 16. says, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you, verse number 16, these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, 
and the bright and morning star. So who is the morning star? It is Jesus Christ himself. So in Revelation 2, when he says, I will give them the morning star, he is saying, I will give them myself. We talked about this a little bit. Jesus has a desire to be with us, John 17, verse 24. He wants to be with us. He wants to have a relationship. And he has given himself to us. I think of the hymn, um, always the same. I am his. He is mine. Jesus knows my name. As a Christian, I have him. He is my reward. He is mine inheritance. I have Jesus Christ. And this is the promise that he is making to those who stand firm within this church. But now let's circle back to the conclusion here. The whole thrust is this. This was a church who had doctrinal error and had unrepentant moral sin in their midst. And they did not deal with it. They were tolerating it. That is the line that we cannot cross. We cannot allow doctrinal error. And I'm not talking about debatable topics, but I'm talking about doctrinal error, things that are clearly against God's truth, the truth of God's word. We cannot allow doctrinal error within the church. We must deal with it. And the focus here, again, is on teaching that which is contrary to the word of God. But also, unrepentant, corruptive sin within the church. We all deal with sin. We're all, we're all struggling with sin constantly. Does that mean we church discipline everybody out because you're dealing with a sin today? That, no, that's not, what the, that's not the focus behind it. But there are sins that we refuse to repent of, and there are sins that have a broader impact on corrupting the church. And we must deal with these types of sins, these types of sins that destroy the body of Christ. As a church, we must learn the balance between tolerating one another, forbearing one another, and also not being too tolerant of things that will destroy the church. All of these churches in Revelation, they're facing persecution. And you might think, oh, persecution's the greatest threat that they face. Persecution's what will destroy these churches. It didn't. They actually thrive under persecution. What destroys these churches is not and not dealing with doctrinal error in their midst. And so the lesson from the Church of Thyatira today is that there is a line, and we cannot cross it. We need, we need to not be too tolerant of these types of things within the body of Christ. Let's go ahead and stand and bow our heads. We'll have a time of invitation tonight. Thank <clears throat> you.